Hello, everyone. This is Alex Barthet from the Lean Zone podcast. Today, we're going to rebroadcast a presentation I gave at the Miami Construction Forum titled Negotiate Like a Boss, Seven Tips to Score the Best Construction Contract Terms. Today is part one of three. Stay tuned in the following weeks to hear part two and part three. If you are in the Miami area and want to attend our free Lunch and Learn Miami Construction Forum events, go to miamiconstructionforum.com to take a look at our upcoming calendar of events for 2024. Let's get started. My name is Alex Barthet. I am a construction lawyer. Thank you all for joining us for the first Miami Construction Forum of 2024. Today, we're going to talk about how to negotiate your construction contracts. We're going to talk about what to include in your contract, what to keep out of your contract, some tips to get some advantage in the course of the negotiation. And we're going to talk about what to do after the contract. Some tips to keep in mind of, okay, we've signed this contract, what do we do now? Uh, we're going to focus on a lot of the subcontractor-contractor relationship. Uh, so when I show you some sample provisions, you'll see that they talk about subcontractors and contractors. But the same applies if you're a sub-sub dealing with a subcontractor or a contractor dealing with the owner. The issues are all the same, but the language of the provision may change. All right, tip number one, use the right contract form. Are they handing you a contract or are you handing them a contract? You should assume that if someone's handing you their contract, it is good for them and bad for you. So what are some ways to deal with that? Um, now, you have, sometimes you have to use their form. You may not have an opportunity. Most times you have to sign someone else's contract. But you need to be prepared for when someone says, well, send me your contract. Do you have a contract ready to go? Or are you going to say, oh, well, I, I, don't, I don't have one, so just send me yours. Well, you've now just lost an amazing opportunity to start the negotiations on better footing because you're using your form versus their form. Now, for some of you in the room, this may be like a one in a million occasion that someone is going to ask you for your contract or sign your contract. But you should still be ready with a form of agreement that you give to someone when they ask you. So take the time to prepare a custom contract, a customized AIA form of agreement, something that you are ready to hand someone when they say, please send me your contract. What can you expect to spend if someone asks you, if, if you hire a lawyer to uh, prepare a contract? You know, somewhere between $1,500 and $2,500 will get you a contract form that's good for you, better for you than the other side, but still somewhat fair. And it, uh, it's a form that you, you can use for, you know, five, 10 years, you know, barring some major change in the law. You can have it and it's ready to go so that when someone asks you, you have something to give them. Uh, now, if you typically use estimates or proposals, add terms and conditions to those documents. You know, you may use a system that generates uh, uh, some type of proposal. And sometimes at the bottom it says, you know, just a few sentences have a formal terms and conditions attached to your proposal. 
Because if nothing else is signed, right? So let's say you give someone a proposal, and, and that's the document that's going to govern. And they never give you another contract. Well, the terms and conditions that are in that proposal are going to govern the relationship of the parties. We'll talk a little bit about what to include in those terms and conditions and in your contract in a little bit. So you can put all this together in about a page, these, these terms and conditions, plus or minus about $1,000 to prepare them. Um, now, when they hand you their form, is it a good fit? What I mean by that is you may find that you've been hired by a mid-sized to large GC, and they hand you their 50-page contract for $50,000 worth of work. Well you know, are you really going to spend all the time reviewing this contract for such a small contract amount? Ask them, do you have a short form agreement? Do you have a PO? If all you do is deliver materials, do you really need to sign a full subcontract or do they have a PO form that is better, a shorter version that you can use to negotiate from? So don't just assume that what they give you is the only form of contract they have. I will tell you most mid-sized to larger GCs, they have multiple versions of their contract. They have a long form, a short form, a PO. So ask them for the smaller form, especially if your contract value is smaller. Um, okay, pro tip, you're submitting a bid. Include this sentence or words like this sentence in your bid document. This bid is conditioned on it being accepted within X number of days. Construction commencing with within X number of days. And the parties negotiating in good faith and signing a mutually agreeable contract form with mutually agreeable terms and conditions. So the question is, can you add that on public project bids? The short answer is you can. It probably doesn't mean much. Um, it's not, it's not going to change because the, the, the city, the county, the state, they're going to use their standard forms. But on private projects, you want to include this because they have a provision in their contract, in their bid documents or in their bid solicitation that says, you agree to use and sign our standard form subcontract. So you need to have something that, goes, go, that you go back with and you say, no, when I submitted my bid, we said we were going to mutually agree on the terms and conditions. The other thing that's important is the number of days for, the, for how long the bid is good and when do you expect to start. How many, I don't want to ask, you'll all raise your hand. All of you have submitted a bid and then found out that, oh, we're not starting now. We're starting in a month, and then two months, and then five months, and then 10 months, and then a year later, and they say, okay, we're ready to go, and you've got prices from a year ago, right? So you want to include language like this in your quote, in your bid, so you can go back to them and say, hey, that bid I gave you 10 months ago, it's no good anymore because I said that we had to, you had to accept it within a certain number of days, and we had to start within a certain number of days. Okay, what to add and what to remove. Tip number two. People ask me all the time, Alex, if you can make one change. You, I've, I've handed you a 100-page contract, okay? One change. What is the absolute most important change you can make in this contract? To me, hands down, the easiest change to make, the most powerful and impactful change to make, for you as a contractor is the right to stop work. You may assume that if I don't get paid, I can stop working. 
Almost always that is not the case. Owners put in contracts with GCs, provisions that prevent them from stop working if there's a dispute. Contractors put those same provisions in subcontracts. Subcontractors put those same provisions in sub-subcontracts. They don't want the job to stop if there's a dispute about scope, about change orders, about payment. They want to argue about that and you keep working. What does that mean for you, right? Payroll, materials, insurance, and you're not getting paid. That's a problem. That's a recipe for disaster. So what can you add? Subcontractor may slow or suspend work if any payment requests have not been paid in full within 30 calendar days from submission. Now, no one's going to sign this, okay? I know that. You know that. But it starts the discussion. This entire presentation is about one thing and one thing only, managing expectations. The expectations that you're managing are manifesting themselves in this contract. If it's not in the contract, it doesn't exist. So you need to have this discussion with the, with the other side, and this is a good way to start. And they'll say, you're crazy. I don't get paid in 30 days. How can I pay you in 30 days? Fine, we'll make it 45. No, we need 120. Well, how about 50? We'll take 60. You know, it's like you're, now you're horse trading, but guess what? You're having the conversation. It, I've been doing this for 25 years. Only once have I helped a client through this process, and the other side has said, no. We intend you to continue to work even if we don't pay you. That's nice to know before you sign the contract, right? So the client then made a business decision on whether or not they were going to go forward with the contract, but that was on the table. If you don't have the discussion, you will find out later that you signed a contract that may have said, that may say, most likely says, you have to keep working even if you're not getting paid. So this is the starting point of the negotiation. And you'll talk, and you, there's lots of ways to modify this agreement. Time, maybe it's not from the submission, maybe it's upon approval by the owner. So there's lots of ways to modify this, but you've got to start somewhere. So that's the number one most important change I would add to your contract. The second most important change that I would make to your contract is increasing the notice and opportunity to cure timeframes in your contract. Let me paint a picture for you. It's Friday afternoon. It's three o'clock. Your wife has planned a trip for you or your husband for this long weekend. You're packing up your desk. You check one last email and it's the owner of the contractor saying, here's your 72 hour notice to cure. Here's a list of 10 things you need to fix. Well, guess what? 72 hours. Let's see. Saturday, Sunday, Monday's a holiday. Uh, honey, we can't, we can't go this weekend, right? You, this is a problem, right? You need to increase that time. You know and I know you can't get anything done in 72 hours. So you need to focus on adding more time. Here's a provision you can add. Subcontractor shall provide subcontractor 10 calendar days detailed written notice to cure any performance issue or delay or claim uh, or before any payments are delayed or any amounts are chargeable to contractor. This goes beyond just like a default notice or a back charge. This is kind of an all-encompassing. Before something bad happens to me, you got to give me notice and you got to give me some time. They probably won't agree to 10 days. Seven is not unreasonable. Five is not unreasonable. 
Um, and as I said, this is the beginning of the negotiation, right? They hand you the contract. It's up to you to negotiate. What are you going to push back with? You're going to push back with something like this, and they're going to say no. And now you have the discussion. So little pro tip, there's a difference between an obligation to cure and an obligation to commence the cure. That word, commence, huge implications in your contract, right? You get the call. You need to now cure something in five days. But what if it takes 20 days to get the pump or two weeks to get the, the, the paint that you need to do it, right? You're not going to get something that fast. But if you can commence the cure, right? Hey, contractor, owner, here's the order I submitted for the replacement part. Um, I've dealt with 10 of the items, and these three are going to take another three weeks, but I've staffed the job, and I am commencing the cure. So adding the word uh, that you are going to commence the cure in that period of time makes all the difference in the world. And at the end of the day, if you have to live with 72 hours because they won't compromise, well, guess what? You can at least commence the cure in 72 hours. You can show them, hey, I'm gone for this long weekend, but here's seven emails where I, I told the parts manufacturer, my subcontractor, all of my employees, that this is what we're going to do to fix this problem. I think that would constitute as commencing the cure. So you've satisfied the condition of the contract. Number, uh, the next thing to add or remove from the contract, add exclusions that are not part of your scope. State the obvious. State the obvious. What are you not going to provide as part of your scope or price? The reason this is important is that what is absent from the contract is almost always what you fight over, right? You're not fighting over a term that is clear in the contract, right? Because anyone can go to the contract and say, look at paragraph 17 of the scope of work. It said you were going to do this. You know, there's not much you can argue about that. Where you find yourself in a dispute is when it's silent. There is nothing in the contract that mentions that it's an obligation for you uh, or not. And the, the dangerous provision you have to be careful with is this one. Subcontractor shall perform all work not specifically referred to in the scope of work, but is reasonably inferable from the contract documents if such other work is customarily or could be performed by this trade or is necessary for a complete and properly functioning installation. This makes you responsible for things you did not price. So how do you deal with a provision like this? Because most contractors are not going to remove the reasonably inferable language from your contract. It, is, uh, it exists in all the AIA contracts. It exists in all owner contracts, all GC contracts. It, so the, you could try to strike it. You know That may be your first move is to try to strike. I reviewed a contract last night. And it had a provision similar to this. And my advice to the client was, strike the provision, but be prepared to deal with it with this additional provision. So, um, but again, my, my expectation is that contractors and owners are not going to strike that provision. So uh, let me give you an example. We represented an owner who was building a school. 
the plans were horrible. Everyone agreed the architect was a disaster on this project. They just had to keep going. So they just worked through all of the issues. And it turned out that the plans did not show thermostats anywhere in any of the classrooms. Showed the air conditioner, no thermostats. Not in a note, not on the drawing, nowhere. So the contract included, between the owner and the contractor, included a reasonably inferable provision. Contractor comes back to us with a $20,000 change order and says, hey, it's not in the plans. We didn't price it. My guy didn't price it. So here's a change order for 20 grand. And we went back to the contractor and said, well, actually, can you tell us any other way to operate an AC unit without a thermostat? Because if you can't, then it is reasonably inferable that if you were installing air conditioners in South Florida, that we needed the little control on the wall to turn it on and off. And he didn't have much to say about that because the contract was very clear and he ate the 20 grand. So um, I'm guessing he made the sub eat the 20 grand, but we, we, the owner, didn't have to pay for it. Okay, what else to add and remove? Add assumptions about your price, scope, schedule, and means and methods. You are making many, many assumptions about how the work is going to happen, and those assumptions are probably not in the contract. If those assumptions are critical for you to meet the schedule, or to hold your price, you need to list them in the contract. So, is your contract price contingent on, have, on starting on a date certain? It probably is. The price you give me today for a job is not the same as the price you'd give me a year from now. So add that as an assumption to your contract. How about access to the site? Um, what was it? There's, I can't remember which bridge. We, we represent a luxury home builder. Is it Venetian Islands? Where you can't drive a fully loaded concrete truck, right, over that bridge, right? Yeah. Right. Three yards only, right? So, you know, is that an assumption in your price uh, when you give a quote? You, you need to list all of those. How about the, the work days and work hours? I'm assuming that I can work Monday through Saturday, 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., right? Put that in your contract as an assumption that my price, scope, schedule, means, and methods is based on that. Surveys, access to water, access to utilities, any underground conditions, um, you know, if you're an underground contractor. We assume uh, that all conditions in the entire site mirror the underground uh, soil borings that were provided. Now again, maybe they don't agree to that exclusion, but now you're gonna talk about it so that it's not a surprise later. What about storage, hoisting, uh, parking, trash, staging areas? If you've logistically managed this job to come to the price you have, and those logistics are important, you need to write those things down in your contract. You should be creating a list of exclusions and assumptions and make that a living document that you deal with all the time. Most contractors have a list of qualifications and exclusions, right? And that's kind of a document that they attach to their contracts with the owners. I don't see that a lot with subcontractors, but I think you should. 
Um, we have a client who has uh, been, been, been around town for a long time, and their contract, terms and conditions, have a story behind every single one of their terms and exclusions. Right, so you could point to point number 14. Oh yeah, that's when this happened, and this lady didn't pay me. So I went there, and this is what happened, and you know, I got screwed out of seven grand, so guess what I did? I added now into my contract, that's another exclusion. So, homework for all of you. When you leave here today, write a list of 10, 20 of the things that have gone wrong for you, where you've had a dispute, an argument with somebody. Those should all be your list of exclusions and assumptions that get added to your contract the next time you have a contract negotiation. The next thing to deal with, add the right to give statutory releases that are conditional. So most contracts that are given to you include a sample release. That release probably is a general release. You're releasing any and all of your rights through and including the data payment uh, for change orders, claims, uh, everything. You would like to be able to use the release forms found in Chapter 713, which is a very simple release. It is just a lien release. That's all it is. It's the most narrow release that you can give. So I recommend that one of the things you add to your contract is, notwithstanding anything here and to the contrary, the parties agree that subcontractor may use the release forms found in Chapter 713 as approved release forms for all partial and final payments and said releases shall be expressly conditioned on payment. The reason this is important, by the way, let's assume you are a electrical subcontractor. It comes, it's now the end of the month, you need to pre prepare your payment request, and you need to attach all of your releases. You gotta go to your electrical supply house and get a release from them. You have two choices. They're either gonna give you a conditional release, which is a release today, with a promise to pay tomorrow, or they're gonna say, if you want an unconditional release, you need to pay me now. Well, if you don't have the right in your contract to provide conditional releases, the owner or contractor could come back to you and say, hey, you gotta give me unconditional releases. Well, I can't give you an unconditional release from my supplier because I haven't paid them, because you haven't paid me. And they say, I don't care. This is what you agreed to. So, you need to add the right to have conditional language in your releases. We have prepared the release, uh, the conditional language for you. If you go to makemeconditionalstamp.com, we will send you for free a stamp that has the conditional language. So every time you get a release and you have to sign it, you stamp the release, you fill in the amount of money, the stamp has the conditional language on it. Maybe you think the, the, the release is conditioned. Maybe it isn't. If you stamp it and fill in the amount, you know it's conditional. Again, go to makemeconditionalstamp.com. We'll send it to you for free. Okay, a few last things to deal with in your contract. Address what happens upon a termination for convenience. Is there some fee that you are entitled to if the contract is terminated for convenience. Most contracts say that I, I'm hiring you, 
I can terminate you for any reason or no reason at all, and all I have to pay you is the amount of money that you're due through and including the date of termination. So what does that mean for you? You may have turned down other jobs to, to take this work. You uh, have allocated labor, supervision, uh, cash flow to this project over others. Um, and now it, they pull the rug out from under you and they say, no, we're not going to use you anymore. My wife's brother just became a plumber and we're going to use him. Um, so what is the consequence of that happening to you? Most contracts say nothing. You get nothing. You get what you're owed and you get nothing else. You need to add in some type of fee. We typically see that fee in one of two ways. One is a lump sum. If you terminate me for convenience, you're going to pay me $5,000, $100,000, you know, some number that may be commensurate with the, the work. Many contractors won't necessarily agree to this, but you need to have the discussion so you are prepared for what happens if they terminate you for convenience. The other way we see it is some percentage of the unearned profit on the remaining portion of the job that you didn't do, right? So let's assume your profit margin is 10%. You have a million dollar job. You have $900,000 left. That amount of unearned profit, you would, under the law, if we just shook hands and you terminated me without cause, I would be entitled to the unearned profit on the, on the remaining portion of the contract I didn't perform. This provision undercuts that. Most people are not going to agree to give you all of your profit, but sometimes they'll agree to give you a percentage of your profit. We negotiated a, I negotiated a contract for a GC, and we agreed to 50% to of the unearned profit on the remaining portion of the contract upon a termination for convenience. The argument is actually simple, right? I've turned down other work. I've committed bonding capacity to your job. I've, I've allocated supervision to your job versus this job. If you just terminate me, you know, you're gonna, there's a cost to that more than just the cost of the materials in the job. You have to, I'm not asking to make money, but I, at least I shouldn't be worse off because you decided to terminate me for convenience. They may agree, they may not agree, but it's a conversation you have to have. Consequential damages. Uh, let me explain what they are so you understand why they are so dangerous. Um, let's assume you're working on a hotel. Uh, actually, we'll make it small. Let's say a restaurant. You're building out a restaurant. Um, and there is no waiver of consequential damages in the contract. So that means you are responsible for consequential damage. Let me make sure everyone understands that. In the absence of a waiver, you are responsible for consequential damages, right? So the only way you are not responsible is to add the waiver. So what happens if you are five months late delivering this restaurant? Well, we've got the direct costs, right? So maybe additional rent, taxes, but the consequential damages are the really big numbers, right? It's the, well, our pro forma on this restaurant said we were going to net 20000 a week, and we couldn't open 
for five months. So you're responsible for all of those consequential damages. The damages that flow from the breach of contract by you, and those are the really, really big numbers. You built a condo or a small multifamily. Now it's late. They can't rent it. So now all of the lost rent is your responsibility. How do you eliminate that liability? You have to add a waiver of consequential damages. Here's an example. Buyer waives any and all claims against seller for special punitive in, uh, indirect economic and consequential damages, including without limitation, loss of use and lost profit. So when you look in that contract, I will tell that someone hands to you, almost certainly you are waiving any consequential damages that they may uh, have to pay you. So it's a one-way waiver. You need to make it a two-way waiver. You both need to waive consequential damages back and forth. In my experience, much more often than not, owners and contractors will agree to some form of waiver of consequential damages. Um, and again, I cannot stress it enough. If you think that the actual damages are big, the consequential damages are substantially larger in most instances. Okay, tip number three. Have your professional team review the contract. So, legal review. Uh, we charge anywhere from $1,500, $2,500, $3,000, depending on the, the contract, right? Sometimes we see a seven-page contract. Sometimes we see a 77-page contract. So it really depends on, this, on how much work we need to do in order to uh, give you a, a price. But to give you some ballpark, right, sometimes people come to me and say, well, I'd like to have a lawyer review the contract, but isn't that like $10,000? I'm like, no, no, it doesn't cost that much. Uh, so just to give you some frame of reference, uh, pro tip. We have a free tool. I think there's a little card, a business card on your desk. The Contract Detective. It is a free artificial intelligence contract review tool. You can upload your contract to contractdetective.com. It will send back your contract in about 90 seconds with 10 of the most dangerous contract provisions that we see highlighted in the contract with a link to a web page and a video explaining what those provisions mean and some proposed changes to make. So that's a lot cheaper than $2,500, right? It's free. So there should be no reason that the next time you get a contract, you don't put it through the contractdetective.com. It's not a lawyer. It's not a robot lawyer. Um, but it's a good start if you want to know what's in, the, in your contract. It's not just the lawyer that needs to see your contract. Your insurance professional needs to review the contract before you sign it. Do you have all of the coverages listed in the contract? Does your insurance professional see any gaps in coverage? Wait a second, the contract requires that you have inland marine coverage. You don't have inland marine coverage. I guess we better talk about that. You either need to take it out of the contract or you need to get the coverage. Sending it to your bonding agent is also critical. If the job needs to be bonded, your bonding agent needs to see the contract. We had a client, a GC, who used our form of agreement and our bond form. Bond forms are just like contracts. They don't always have to be the AIA form. They can say anything they want. Uh, 
So the form of bond is important. So we wrote the bond form for our clients so it benefits them over the subcontractor. Subcontractor signs the contract, goes to their bonding agent after he signs the contract, and the bonding agent says, we're not, we're not gonna sign this bond, were you crazy? And guess what, subcontractor, immediate default. He signs the contract, doesn't even step foot on the job, he is in default of the contract because he cannot procure the bond he agreed to procure per the terms of his contract. So before you sign the contract, your insurance professional needs to look at it and your bonding agent needs to look at it. 